as you were playing it as well with my soul, I couldn't help but uh, think of the tragedy that kind of spurred on that song and uh, the trial that that man went through in losing his family in a uh, drowning in an ocean liner accident, or not accident, but uh, anyway, I was uh, thinking of how it uh, intersected with the, the text that we've been studying and how God used it for good. If you would open your Bibles to James chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 13. Actually, we'll begin in verse 1 today, but uh, we'll primarily be in verses 13 to 18. And the title of the message is, Don't Be Deceived. In order to get the context, I'm just going to begin reading in James 1 verse 1. Just to remind us of where we've been and uh, bring us up to speed uh, uh, through verse 13. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the normal way that you might open a letter. It's identifying the author, and this is James, not James the apostle, but James the half-brother of Jesus. He came to saving faith shortly after the resurrection of his half-brother, and, uh, and he became a pillar in the church there in Jerusalem, and he's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. He says, greetings. So these are those men and women and young people who were members of that church in Jerusalem who had been experiencing very significant trials as a result of the persecution that began in Acts chapter 8 with the stoning of Stephen at the hands of uh, the Pharisee named Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. And then later, it accelerated those... Uh, um, persecutions accelerated in uh, Acts chapter 12 with the beheading of the apostle James. And uh, so he's writing to men and women who are experiencing trials and hardships. And these are serious difficulties. They have lost homes. They've lost jobs. They've lost their possessions. They have been imprisoned. Some of them have been killed. Um, It is a serious time of persecution if you're a first century Christian. They are not living their best life now. And, uh, And so as James opens this letter, he addresses the topic that's on everybody's mind, and that is trials. And so he says in verse two, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And it's not a if you encounter trials, it's a when you encounter trials. Trials are inevitable, and we all understand that. And he says, when you look at your life, you have assets and liabilities. And we might think that those difficulties really are liabilities. But he says, consider them joy. Put them in the asset column. Consider them as joy. He's not saying that you're going to feel joy. He's not, going to say, he's not saying that they're easy. But he's saying that when you do the, the spiritual inventory of your life, put those in the asset column. They are joy. Why is that? Because verse 3 says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That word testing is really the idea of refining metals. When you heat up silver or gold, there's the dross that rises to the top and you skim that off. And when you're done with that that process of heating it and taking out the impurities, you have a more refined metal. And that, he says that's what's happening with your faith. It is producing endurance. It is refining your faith. The ability to hold up under, to be steadfast, immovable, It's like God is using trials to pour concrete and put rebar into the foundations of our faith so that we will be more steadfast. And then he says in verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
If you're a Christian and you are undergoing trials, you can know that there's a purpose in them. He says, so that, here's the purpose, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God doesn't want any holes in your Christian life. He wants you to be fully mature. He does not want there to be flaws, and he's using trials as part of that process. And we all understand trials are hard, and there are times when, when we don't know what to do. And so he says, hey, in those times when you don't even know what to do, ask God for wisdom. Verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You need to ask God for the discernment and the wisdom to go through this trial in a way that is honoring to him. There is some fine print here. He says it will be given to him there in verse 5, but, and that word is important, but the one who's asking must ask in faith, and he must do it without doubting. And, and later in verse 8, he says, without being double-minded. Don't be praying for, yes, God, I really want to honor you in the midst of this trial, but it would be really cool to me if this trial were over right now. Don't be double-minded. Don't be thinking, I, I, I want to honor God, but I'd really rather have something else, or I want it to turn out in a certain way. No, just ask for the wisdom to be able to navigate this trial in a way that's pleasing in his sight, and it will be answered. Don't be asking in, with doubt. Don't be double-minded. Don't be vacillating. In verse 9 through 11, he talks about um, believers who are poor and believers who are rich. And if you're, if you're poor and of humble means, it may be that you think to yourself, if I only had more resources, I would be able to navigate this trial in a better way. And if you're rich, you might be thinking and taking confidence in the fact, I'm really glad I got a big bank account because now I've got the resources to be able to navigate this, this trial uh, in a little bit easier fashion. And James is saying, yeah, I want you to look beyond your circumstances and your earthly circumstances and look to your heavenly reward in verse 12. Don't allow your earthly circumstances to um, change your trust in God. Focus on the fact that you are rightly related to the God of the universe and you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's what you need to focus on. And look forward to, in verse 12, he says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is the victor's crown. That's what you get when you win the race. He says that man is blessed. It's not the man who has no affliction. It's not the man who never experiences trials. He says blessed is the man who perseveres, who remains steadfast under those trials. And you need to understand the crown of life is not a reward for the righteous. It's not a reward for finishing the race. The crown of life, if you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, if you have exercised genuine saving faith, you are the one they're talking about in verse 12. And the Lord himself is the one who ensures that you persevere and ensures that you are the one who receives that crown of life. And it's not based upon our performance in a trial. It's based upon God's promise to sustain you and preserve you through that trial. It is the Lord himself who is interceding at, at, at the right hand of God for believers. And he will lose none. And that's James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Those are trials that come on us from the outside. 
And now James is going to transition a little bit to trials that, and temptations that come to us from the inside. Have you ever been tempted in the midst of hard times to question God's character? Maybe ask yourself, is God really good? Could a good God allow my family to go through this? Could a good God allow this tragic circumstance uh, somewhere in the world? Could a good God do that? Maybe you've fallen into sin and, or, or bad attitudes or grumbling and complaining. Or maybe you've had ungodly and blasphemous thoughts about God's character. Maybe he's good, but he just isn't powerful enough to, to orchestrate things in a way that is to my liking. Trials are hard. I don't always consider trials a joy. I don't always put them in the asset column. I don't always navigate trials in a way that's faithful. But James addresses that issue right here in verses 13 to 18 on believers who are in the midst of trials and may be tempted to sin. These are trials that God intends for our good and for our benefit and for our blessing, but we turn them into opportunities and occasions that involve sin. Let me read verses 13 to 18 of James chapter 1. Verse 13, Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. I want you to notice that in verses 13 and 14, James uses the word tempt or tempted five times. We've already seen this word uh, in the previous verses. It turns out that that word is used in verse 2. So turn back to verse 2. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That word trials is the exact same word for tempted in verse 13 and 14. It's the same root word. In verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. That's the same word that is later translated as tempted. What is it that changes the translation for us? It really is context. A temptation is an enticement to sin. It comes to us in the, sometimes in the midst of trials. In verse 2, we're to consider it all joy. We would never consider it all joy when we're tempted to sin, right? That's a different word. We would translate that as a trial. It's a test. In verse 12, it's the man who perseveres under trial. and He's going to get the crown of life. But in verse 13, that word test or that Greek word, that Greek word is actually in the context of sin, death, and evil. And that's translated correctly as temptation. Temptation is not sin. That's not sin. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus himself was tempted in all things as we are, 
yet without sin. Temptation becomes sin when we start entertaining it in our minds and we start thinking about it and we start taking pleasure in it. We start inviting it over and and making time for it. Now it's sin. Temptation is a universal experience. It happens to all of us. But it starts in the mind. Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. You don't have to turn there. I will for you and read it. You have heard it said, and this is Jesus, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There is that initial temptation maybe of an attractive woman or maybe an attractive man and it becomes sin when you start thinking about other things and dwelling on it, immoral thoughts with somebody other than your wife or your husband. Now it's sin. The Apostle Paul struggled at times with sin and the temptation to to do the very thing he doesn't want to do. Read Romans. The thing he wants to do, he doesn't find himself doing, and he's tempted to do something else. Look at verse 16 with me. James chapter 2, verse 16. Right in the middle of this section, James writes, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And you can hear the pastoral care here. He calls them my beloved. Fifteen times in this book, he refers to them as brethren. Here's the first time he's calling them my beloved brethren. He says, do not be deceived. That's always a good idea. It's never a bad, um, that's never bad advice at any point. But the question is, why is it here in the middle of this section that is dealing with temptations and trials? And I think the answer lies in the fact that when we're walking through this road of temptation and we're on that road, it can be very easy for us to fall into deception. As a matter of fact, the way James has written this, word, this phrase, do not be deceived, it's a command and it seems like they're already being deceived. Stop being deceived. Stop allowing yourself to wander from the truth and to be led astray. You need to stop doing that and stop it immediately. Sometimes Paul used that phrase, do not be deceived, as a way of emphasizing something he had just said. Don't be deceived about that and focusing your attention on the fact that you could be deceived in this area. And sometimes he used it as a preview for what he's about to say. You need to recognize you could be deceived in this particular area. And the commentators are kind of split. Why is this right in the middle here? Is it, do not be deceived in the verses, I'll say 13 to 15. Is that where the deception is? And that's where we should focus. Or is it really verses 17 and 18? Is that where we could be deceived? And I actually believe it's, there's there's ditches of deception on both sides of the road, if you will. I think it's a both and. I don't think it's an either or here. I think it's easy for us to become deceived about, one, whose fault sin is, right? We might blame ourselves. We won't blame ourselves. We might blame God. We might blame others, and we'll get into that. And it's also possible to be deceived about God's character and God's goodness. That is all possible. It could be de- you could be deceived about what God is not doing, and you could alternatively be deceived about what God is doing and what God is like. 
And trials make us more susceptible to these types of things. We get tired, and there are, <laughs> trials are really difficult. Sometimes we don't think as clearly as we might like to think when things are really hard. So James warns us of two sinful deceptions that you and I can be particularly vulnerable to. To believing in times of trial. And being alert to those deceptions can allow us, one, to avoid sin, and two, to respond better in the midst of trials when we are tempted to sin. In James 2, or James 1, 2 to 12, James describes those things that come on us from the outside, those things that, are, that we are to put in the joy column. But here in James 1, 13 to 18, these are temptations that come to us from the inside. This is an inside job here. These are difficult times where we're tempted to sin. Maybe sinful thoughts, maybe sinful actions, maybe sinful ideas about who God is and what He's like. Let me give you both points right here, both deceptions. I don't typically do this, but I'm going to today. So point one, don't be deceived about the cause of temptation. Don't be deceived about the cause of temptation. That's in verses 13 to 15. And then in verses 17 and 18, don't be deceived about the character of God. Don't be deceived about the character of God. Have you ever noticed that when you get caught doing something that maybe you shouldn't, your first instinct is to blame somebody else or make excuses? Gene and I took a walk a few years ago. Uh, early in the morning, we typically do this. And, and when we got home from the walk, uh, and it's, uh, I noticed that there was a wrapper on the floor. Uh, it was a Reese's peanut butter cup wrapper on the floor of our kitchen. And it wasn't there when we left. Uh, well, that's kind of interesting. So I went into Austin's room. And uh, Austin has got chocolate on his hands. He's got chocolate on his face. He is sitting in wrappers in his bed. And I said, have you been eating chocolate? And he said, no. Who has been eating the chocolate? And he said, it was Andrew. And I look at Andrew, he's asleep. Now we homeschool, but we don't have a class on teaching kids to blame shift or lie, or any of that other stuff. It turns out that they're pretty good at it right from the very get-go. And it turns out we've got a long history of being able to lie and blame shift. Open your Bibles to Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. And I know we go here a lot, but I think it's worth reiterating. So Genesis chapter 3, God has told Adam and Eve, don't eat from one particular tree in the garden, and they have done it. And so God shows up and he's looking around for him and, hey, where are you? In verse 11, he says, and he says, Who told you you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And notice Adam's response. He says, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. He does not accept full responsibility. He doesn't immediately say, Please forgive me. I sinned against you. I take full responsibility. Uh, I, I just ask your forgiveness. He doesn't do that. He immediately blames his wife. And at some level, wives are responsible for a lot of sin, right? I, Adam, went, Adam went to sleep, and then he woke up married. And this, is, this was given to him by God. So he inadvertently 
He, he blames his wife, and then he inadvertently blames God. Maybe not inadvertently, maybe very deliberately. God, you created her. You gave her to me. She's the one who made me sin. And, and then Eve doesn't do too much better in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It wasn't her fault. It, God, by the way, who created the serpent? It wasn't me. She doesn't take any responsibility either. So blame shifting has a long and, and very um, distinguished history. One of my other favorite places in, in blame shifting is actually in Genesis, uh, where is it? Exodus. Exodus 32, if you'd go there with me. Exodus 32. Look at verse 21. And you know the story. Moses is up on the mountain, and he's been gone a long time. He's been gone 40-ish days, and, and the people are getting restless. We don't know what's happened to him. And so they approach Aaron, and Aaron ends up, hey, put all your earrings, put all your gold in the fire, and, we'll, and he makes a golden calf. And so look at uh, verse, I'll start reading in verse 21. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do? do to you as he comes down and he sees what's going on that brought you to such great sin upon them even even Moses at some level is blaming somebody else for this and Aaron said do not let the anger of my Lord burn you know the people yourself that they were prone to evil they are prone to evil it's the people's fault they did this you know how they are as if he's that's an excuse for sin here. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and then out comes this calf. I had nothing to do with it. This is not my fault. That's a good one. It's a lie. None of that absolves him of responsibility here, but we are good And in our day, we're really good. Every headline, practically, is blaming somebody else for their own sin and their own problems. It's the environment. That's why we sinned. I grew up poor, so of course I'm going to steal. Racism, abusive home. Maybe they grew up in a dysfunctional home. That's kind of a covering for just about everything. Hormones. Maybe you've got too many. Maybe you don't have enough. And that's why you sin. If you hadn't raised your voice to me, I wouldn't have responded the way I did. I've heard many people, even in the midst, and unfortunately I'm going to have to say um, that I've done this at times, I have excused my own sin in asking for forgiveness from others by adding some fine print at the end of my my asking for forgiveness. Uh, Boy, I wouldn't have done that, but I was really tired. Um, Boy, my, my son wouldn't have acted like that, but he hadn't had a nap. Uh, All of those things are excuses. Sometimes we blame God for our excuses or blame God for our sin. See, God hasn't taken away uh, my desire for pornography, so that's why I still use it. It's God's fault. I don't know what God's been waiting for. Maybe it's drugs, alcohol, sexual promiscuity. Maybe it's gluttony. God created me this way, and he wants me to be happy, that's why I'm leaving my wife. I'm not leaving my wife. God opened the door to to a temptation that he knew I couldn't resist. Sometimes people with a very high view of God's sovereignty 
almost make God responsible for their sin. And there's no almost about it. Every time we add a caveat to our sin, we are in one sense or another, either directly or indirectly, blaming God. Another area that I have seen recently is a lot of genetic research. You know, we're trying to find a gene that makes you responsible for being abusive or being an alcoholic or being a homosexual. And at some level, there's truth in the genes. We have inherited every bit of our genes from our greatest grandfather, Adam. And our sin nature is 100% inherited by every one of us. But it doesn't excuse our sin. It doesn't absolve us from responsibility. The best antidote to, tr- to deception is truth. And, and so that's where James goes. What's the truth about temptation, James? And he says in verse 13 that God is not to blame. It's an imperative. Stop saying this immediately. Do not blame God. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Stop saying that. That is not true. Why? Why can't we blame God for our sin? Isn't he sovereign? Well, James brings two pieces of evidence here to to justify and explain why God is not to blame for our sin. First is God's character. For God cannot be tempted. You might translate this as God is continuously untemptable by evil. Evil is anything that's corrupt or vile, wicked, foul, bad. It's not as it should be. Anything that God has commanded, anything that we, anytime we fall short of that, that is some level of wickedness. It is evil. 1 John 1.5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve of evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. James appeals to God's character and second, he he appeals to God's conduct. And he says, and he himself, and he's emphatic in the way he's writing this, does not tempt anyone. God would never tempt anyone to evil because it would be inconsistent with his character. The Old Testament makes it clear that God did test his followers. Turn to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 22, sorry. Genesis 22, verse 1. We're familiar with the story, but this is a test in the Old Testament. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. He brought a test into Abraham's life. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And we're familiar with what occurred there. God was testing Abraham. In Exodus chapter 16, turn to Exodus 16 verse 4. Exodus 16, verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether or not they walk in my instruction. So you need to understand that that God is in the process, and God does test his people. At least 21 times in the Old Testament, in a cursory review, as I was just looking for the word test, He's testing people, but the reality is God was in the 
business of testing people all the time. As a matter of fact, in, in Proverbs 17, verse 3, it became so common, such common knowledge that it was recorded. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. It's his habit to do tests to refine us. That is what God does. But at no time is God testing his people in order to tempt them to evil. That's not what God does. Tempting someone to evil would itself be evil. See, tests are intended to grow our faith and to draw us closer to God. Temptations do the opposite. Temptations destroy and degrade our faith. And they draw us away from God or they push God away. That's the difference. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. There's an amazing promise that God makes through the Apostle Paul in verse 13. And if you haven't memorized this, this would be a great one to memorize. But 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Let me repeat that. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you, may, you will be able to endure it. Our faithful God has promised that there will be no temptation that comes to us that we cannot endure, and God is going to provide a way of escape also. That is good of God to do that. This is an amazing truth. So it's, if it's not God's fault when we are tempted to sin, the question is, whose fault is it? And James answers that in verse 14. Verse 14 says, But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. The temptation is not an external coming you from, to you from the outside. This is an, an internal issue. You're carried away and enticed by his own lust. Lust is the, has the idea of a strong desire. It's actually a neutral word. It could be a, you could have legitimate lust. It could be, there are immoral and illegitimate lust. We hear that word in English. We tend to associate it primarily with sexual immorality. But in the Greek, it could be used positively or negatively, depending on what it is. As a matter of fact, Jesus is said to have earnestly desired, and that's our same word. Anything you earnestly desire or desire very strongly is that word. Jesus is said to have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples before he was to suffer. That's a legitimate desire. Most often in the New Testament, however, it's used in a sinful context and it's used in sinful ways. It's a desire to do things that are contrary to what God's Word says. I like the way he, James writes this. It's, he writes, carried away and enticed. And those are, uh, those are words that are ripped straight out of the hunting and fishing magazine of the day. But uh, those, are, those are, if you were fishing, you might do this type of thing or hunting. And you think about, you, if you were fishing, you attract the fish, and then you've got some very alluring type of bait to draw them in. And that bait has got a hook on it. And it's interesting the way uh, James has constructed the, the uh, carried away and enticed. He's constructed it such that it is obvious that you yourself are setting the trap. You yourself are baiting the hook 
that you're going to be caught with by your own lust. You're doing it to yourself. He uses the middle voice here. James says it's your own lust that tempts you. And as he transitions to verse 15, he switches the metaphor from hunting and fishing to conception and and the reproductive process. And he says, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James says that temptations and our own lust come together in this unholy union and then sin is the offspring. And then sin becomes a parent and its kid is, is death. And, and so if you follow the genealogy of how sin and uh, how temptation works is lust is the parent, sin is the child, and then death is the grandchild. And James's point is this. In the same way conception will eventually lead to birth, temptation as it turns to sin, as it combines with your own lusts, as you turn it over and it becomes sin, it will eventually come out in a physical way as sin. Death here is physical death. All sin eventually leads to death. That is the penalty and the punishment for sin. Unconfessed sin also leads to a lack of fellowship with God, a, a distant relationship with God. Death in the New Testament and even today is sometimes used as a form of discipline for sinning Christians. Paul warned of those, those Christians who were partaking of the communion in an unworthy manner. They were getting drunk and they were being selfish. And some of them, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, he says, he says, for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And he was referring to death. They'd been disciplined right out of, the, uh, out of this life into the next one. Temptation always begins with that initial attraction and then we dwell on it and it becomes sin. And eventually it works its way out into words and actions and attitudes. The best time to confess your sin is while it's still in your mind. We can't prevent temptations from coming to us, but we can prevent our minds from focusing on them and inviting them over and spending time thinking about them. Imagine what King David could have done in 1 Samuel 11. He sees Bathsheba bathing from his roof. And he thought about it. And he inquired of her. And he allowed that in that initial temptation to take root. And it became sin in his mind. And then he invited her over. And then it eventually leads to adultery. It leads to a, a, a child born out of adultery. It leads to the murder of her husband. And b- basically a lifetime of consequences. Can you imagine if David would have instead had that initial temptation and found himself right then going, Lord, please forgive me. I was having impure thoughts. Uh, Please help me guard my mind. Help me take every thought captive. To end it right there, to confess your sin, that's the right time to do it. I've found myself, even as I've studied this text, confessing sins in my mind in ways that I have never done before. I typically waited, although I don't know why. I I understand what the Bible says about dwelling on it in your mind. You can sit in your mind. We've already read what Jesus said about it. But I have found myself confessing my own sin and asking for forgiveness when it pops into my head and I spend time thinking about it. Why am I thinking about this? What am I doing? Lord, please forgive me. When temptations come, 
don't blame God. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Take responsibility. Don't make excuses for your sin. Every time we add reasons, we add small print, we add um, justification to the reasons why we sin, we are in one way or another, directly or indirectly, blaming God because He is sovereign. God doesn't tempt anyone. Temptation is a result of your own lust. James says, don't be deceived. It's your issue. Don't be deceived. Don't blame God or anyone else for your sin when you cave into temptations. Admit your sin and plead for God to be merciful. 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ask for forgiveness right when it starts. Don't be deceived about the cause of temptation. There's a second sinful deception that you and I are vulnerable to, believing when when trials come. First, don't be deceived about the cause of temptation. And second, don't be deceived about the character of God. We'll see this in verses 17 and 18. And I have to admit, when when you and I are in the midst of difficult circumstances and and we find ourselves caving into temptations, uh, I I sometimes go down this path that's sinful. It's, God, do you know what you're doing? God, is, is this good? How can this be good? And we become vulnerable to blasphemous thoughts, untrue thoughts about who God is and what He's like. We can be susceptible to behaving in trials that are in a sinful way that reflects poorly on God's reputation. We can be tempted to have questions about God's goodness and God's sovereignty. Is He really good? And if He is good, can he, is He just not powerful enough to stop this particular trial? Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. Go to verse 12. Let me just set the context for you. Children of Israel, led by Moses and Aaron, have been wandering at this point for about 20 years in the desert as punishment for disbelieving the spies and not trusting God about going in and taking the promised land. They've been 20 years, and and now they have no water. Miriam, Moses' sister, has just died. The people are grumbling and complaining. There's about two million people looking at Moses and Aaron right here. And God tells Aaron to and Moses to take the staff and speak to the rock, and I will bring water out of it, and you can feed every you can basically drink water. That's what is supposed to happen here. But Moses sins. And he doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes the rock. And he lost the privilege of being able to go into the promised land. So did did Aaron. Look what it says in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. I don't know about you, but it, it still seems a little bit minor. He was supposed to speak to the rock, and he hits the rock. But he sinned. He didn't obey God. And the reality is, God says, you didn't treat me as holy in front of all of these people that are watching. 
And then I wonder, how much worse are you and I's sin when we are in a trial and temptation? Amazon has got this um, thing. It's called Verified Purchase Review. And the idea of those are, this is somebody who's actually tested the product. And, and, and so you can believe their review. That's the sense of it. And you can think about trials in much the same way. We are essentially writing an Amazon review of our God in trials. If you, are, if you have exercised saving faith in Jesus Christ, and if you've actually been faithful and you've joined a church and you've been baptized, you've identified yourself as a follower of Christ, and now you go through a trial and you do it in a poor way. You do it in a sinful way. You are essentially testifying to the outside world. I'm an I'm a Amazon reviewer of God right now. I'm a walking billboard of what God is like and what God expects and what his followers are like. We tarnish God's reputation through that type of behavior. We are ambassadors of Christ. Our behavior is a reflection of our beliefs. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's true. But I would contend that the flip side of that is also true. When we let people see, as followers of Christ, when we let people see our sinful works, they're not glorifying God because that person lost their faith when they got a bad health diagnosis or there was a car wreck. No, they are wondering about our God. They're wondering about us. They're wondering about, is God really good when we walk through trials like that? But when you see somebody, I'll use Brian Biedebach as an example. And he was talking about him being, you know, a wonderful testimony, a great attitude. And there's been many people in this church who've been the same way. But I'll use the one we just talked about this morning. You know, he's looking at it and he's honoring the Lord in that. And that is an enormous testimony to the outside world. When we undergo trials, it's a reflection of God's character. It's a, re- it's a reflection of his reputation. When followers of Christ behave sinly and we cave into temptations and we doubt God's promises and we doubt God's goodness and we doubt God's sovereignty... It is an enormous testimony to the world that is watching us as followers of Christ. When we're in a trial, it's easy to deceive ourselves about who God is and what He's like. I've been there. What's the truth about God in the midst of your trial? Well, James draws our attention to several attributes of God here that we need to pay particular attention to in the midst of our trials. Attributes of God that are particularly vulnerable to distortion and lies and, and, and not believing the truth about God. Especially when we allow our circumstances to dictate our thoughts about God, we are especially prone to err. We need to do the opposite. We need to allow the truth of Scripture to inform our circumstances, not the other way around. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, sorry, I've got to go back to James chapter 2, or 1, verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing given and every perfect gift 
There's actually two words for gift here, or the idea. They're both different. One describe, the first one describes the act of giving, and the second one is the gift itself. And you might translate this as every act of giving that is good. The motives are good. The purposes are good. The idea of good is inherently good. It is upright. It is beneficial. It is sensible. It is well thought out. And then every perfect gift. This is a gift that is perfectly suited to the person and perfectly suited to the time. It's the right timing. It's the right gift. Given in the right way with the right purpose, the right plan. Everything about it is good. I've been married 35 years today to my wife. And over the years, she has discovered that I am not a good gift giver. I mean well. I do, but I give gifts that are ill-suited to my wife. I have given her a weed whacker. (laughs) The single guy laughs. I have given her a tractor. I gave her, early on in our marriage, DOS 6.0. I am not going to explain it. I mean well in every one of these things. There was one particular point where Gina asked in a moment of insanity, what should we get for Brian for his birthday? And I want to get something good, something memorable, something unique. And I suggested that we buy him an eagle. And uh, she just walked away as if I hadn't even answered the question (laughs) and ignored it completely. I am not a good gift giver, and I I accept that. That isn't God. God gives perfectly suited gifts at exactly the right time. So if you're questioning God's goodness, don't. God is giving these gifts, and, and James continues. These are gifts that are from above coming down from the Father of lights, And the way he's constructed this, these are repeatedly coming down, continuously coming down. It is God's habit to continually give good gifts, suitable gifts, perfect gifts all day, every day. Yes, you're in a trial and God is still the same. He's giving good gifts. He used this term, Father of Lights. This is the only time in the New Testament this is used. And it's not, frankly, used very many times outside of the New Testament. It likely refers to the fact that God created the sun, moon, and the stars, those things that, 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 that Brian just prayed about in, in Psalm 19. He's the creator of everything. But those, the sun, moon, and stars, he created, and he's the father of all of them. There are some commentators who believe that, that this might be part of an ancient worship, I'll say first century worship, Uh, prior to praying the Shema. The Shema is the, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is God, and and some other verses in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But prior to saying that prayer, they would say, Blessed be the Lord our God who formed the lights. So that's our God. He is good. And and frankly, if you you think back, I won't go back there, but if you think back to Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of that temptation is, has God really said that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the way it's questioned, it, it, now, God didn't say that, and Eve knew that he didn't say that, but it insinuates that God is stingy. God isn't good. God isn't generous. God isn't loving. So Satan wants to tempt us 
to believe that God is not good. It's one of his oldest tricks in the book. He's only got a couple of pitches here. And he goes to this one a lot. In times of trial, we might be very susceptible, but there's good news because there's another attribute of God that, that James at this point brings up, and that is that God is unchangeable. He is immutable. So even though he's good, his goodness doesn't stop when you're in a trial. Donald read Psalm 106 this morning, or parts of it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. It lasts forever. Psalm 119.68, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. In our book that we're going through in adult Sunday school, The Attributes of God, Pink says this in chapter 11 on the goodness of God. He writes, We must never tolerate an instant's unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain that Jehovah is good. And here's the good news. God doesn't change. God doesn't change. He says, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You might be susceptible to deception about the fact that God changes. You know, God used to be good back in those days before this trial came on me. But he must have hit the pause button because right now he's not good. That never happens. In contrast to the lights, the sun, moon, and stars, which shift with seasons. They shift with the time of day. The shadow changes on the ground. In contrast to all that, our God never changes. There is no variation or shifting shadow. God's purposes don't change. His attributes don't change. His plan doesn't change. This is not a sort of distraction therapy. I want you to just remember the good times. You know, count your many blessings back before God brought the trial into your life. That's not what's happening here. James is saying, yes, you're in a trial, and the trial is one of his good gifts. It's so that the truths of James chapter 1 verse, verse 4 are going to be worked out in you that, so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is not a pause on his goodness. God is immutable. God's purposes are immutable. James says that those gifts, the, the trial that you're currently in, even the temptation to sin, even if the hardship that is coming upon you is a result of, of somebody else's sin, it is still good for you to go through it. And benefit from it because God wants to fully mature you so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a final attribute that James draws to our attention in verse 18, and that's the grace of God. The grace of God. And, and this really is, if you're tempted to, to doubt God's goodness, this is the ultimate good and perfect gift. Is the salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He says in verse 18, In the exercise of his, that's God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. No matter which way you translate that, in the exercise of his will, the truth you need to understand is if, if you think you have exercised saving faith because you're smarter and you can evaluate facts better than most, you are gravely mistaken. It's God's 
sovereign grace that caused you to be alive. If you want a homework assignment, look up, uh, I'll just give you one sentence, one sentence for you to do homework on. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. It's a big sentence because Paul wrote it. But when you look at that sentence, and we're not, we don't have time to go, through, go to it right now, but you will find that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit does everything necessary to draw us to saving faith. And he's got to, in chapter 2, he's got to make us alive. The very first thing, the only act that we do in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, is we heard the message, and it's the gospel of truth, and we believed. But the one who gave us the faith to believe, the one who awakened us from the dead, the one who resurrected us is God. God does it all. He brought us forth. And James sets up this stark contrast between, he uses the same verb here, brought us forth, in verses 15 and verse 18. In verse 15, it's our lust that brings forth sin and death in this idea of of pregnancy, if you will. And then in verse 18, the Father of lights brings forth eternal life. He brought us forth. How did he do it? By the the word of truth, by the, the gospel of our salvation. Four times in the New Testament, the word of truth is, is just defined as the gospel. It's the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. It's the good news that sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God by belief in what his son has done on the cross, that he took all the sin upon himself and he paid the penalty. But we've got to come to him on his terms. It's not just assent or belief in a set of facts. It is submission to Christ as Lord. We've got to repent and we've got to believe and we've got to follow Christ, commit ourselves to following Christ no matter what the cost and no matter what the consequence. That's the gospel. Why did he do it? So that we would be, and here's the, fir- the, the purpose, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. First fruits is an Old Testament term. You find it in, in Deuteronomy and, and various other New Te- Old Testament passages in the, in the Pentateuch. But it, it has the idea of the first part of the harvest, whether it be grain or, or some agricultural harvest, or it could be flocks and livestock. But it's the first part, and you dedicate it to God. And it was an act of thanksgiving to God for bringing in the harvest, and it was showing trust in God that he would bring in the rest of the harvest because they don't have refrigerators. A fire could happen. And when you give the first part of your harvest to God, it's showing that you trust him to bring in the rest to sustain you. It's an agricultural society. That's the first fruit. Believers are the first fruit. They are the first and best part of the harvest of creation. They're the first installment. So as James addresses these Jewish believers... He says, you're the first fruit. You are the first part of a harvest, a great harvest of believers that we're part of. The grace of God in salvation is the ultimate example of God's goodness. And it doesn't, he doesn't hit the pause button on goodness. <clears throat> if you're familiar with Ephesians, actually you can turn there if you want, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast, 
for we are his workmanship. And verse 10 is so important. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Here's James's point. It is absolutely inconceivable that God's own Son would pay the penalty for sin. He would die on a cross for sin as the penalty for every genuine believer throughout all time. He would pay that entire penalty and then God would tempt believers to sin. It can't happen. It doesn't make any sense. God regenerated us for good works. He made us born again by His sovereign grace so that we would walk in good works. And one of the good works that He has predestined for you and I is to walk through trials and be tempted at times. And He's given us the grace to get through those. Temptations are a part of life and we're not going to escape them until God returns for us or calls us home. Understanding the truth about temptations will allow us to, one, avoid sin and avoid deception and respond rightly when those temptations come. Confess it right at the very beginning. Break that cycle of sin and death. Ask for forgiveness. So if you're in a trial right now and and you've already blown it, you already are exhibiting a poor attitude You are already sinning or doubting God's goodness or God's grace or God's kindness or any other attribute of God that is true all day, every day. Then ask for forgiveness. Don't blame God for this temptation. Don't be deceived. Take full responsibility of your sin. Don't add any fine print. Don't blame your wife. Don't blame your husband. Don't blame your kids. Don't blame you didn't get a nap. Take full responsibility for it. Don't be deceived about the cause of temptation. You're the cause. But hold fast to the fact that there is no temptation that has come into you that that you cannot, with God's grace and with God's enablement, endure without sin. Don't be deceived about about the cause of temptation. Don't be deceived about God's character. Cling to those truths. Know the truths before Get in the the situation in the first place. Don't be deceived. Hold to those truths about God's conduct and about the truth about trials and the purpose of trials so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's where God is going. He is committed to it. Live like you believe God's word. Amen. Father, you are good. And you do good. And for that, we say thank you, O God. We thank you for caring enough about our character and our faith that you test us and you make it stronger and you work in us endurance. And for that, we say thank you, O God. And we would ask that that you might enable us, O God, to navigate trials in a way that are pleasing in your sight as the Holy Spirit empowers us. Help us to cling to your truth. Help us to love your truth. Help us to love you, O God, first and foremost. Amen.